again, welcome everybody. Welcome to the October 2020 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. And once again, you're joining us via Zoom, because as you know, at the moment, we're unable to meet in person. Um, but we do hope that's very, very soon, we'll all be able to meet up in our favorite venue in the Crutched Friars pub in the heart of Whitechapel. Now tonight we welcome Dr. Michelle Johansson, Interpretation Manager at the Bishopsgate Institute. Now for those of you who are not aware of the Institute, let me explain a little bit about it. It's located in Bishopsgate, which is a very short walk from Liverpool Street Station. And it was created in 1894 by the Reverend William Rogers, who operated out of St. Botolph's Church. Now there are two St. Botolph's Church in this area. The one that I'm talking about is near um, Liverpool Street Station, not the one that we're aware of in Whitechapel Stroke Allgate. So the Bishopsgate Institute is a place where you can watch cultural events from music and concerts to debates and talks. It's a place of research where you can go to refer to the library's 150,000 books. And they also have available to browse a considerable photography and oral history archive as well. And finally, it's a place to learn. There are a multitude of courses that you can attend. And this is something which is very close to our speaker tonight, who is a, a lecturer there. Dr. Johansson is a social historian specializing in the history of modern London, with a particular emphasis on social class, mobility, regional identities. She's been publishing journals such as Searching History, The London Journal, and Cultural and Social History. She has more than 10 years experience of delivering learning sessions at the Bishopsgate Institute. And earlier this week, I actually went on to the website to have a look at some of these courses. And these are just three that I've pulled out. There's one on the sh a short history of London's East End, 1880s to 1970s. A short history of Victorian London and a short history of food, 1860s to 1970s. Now that particular session, and these are all done via webinar. Uh, it actually starts on the 17th of October. So if you're interested in that, you can actually um, book yourself on that course. And obviously all of these will be of interest to anybody with an interest in Victorian London. Tonight though, she'll be giving us an illustrated talk about a gallery of East End characters who used to live in the area. And they came in search of fame, self-fulfillment, political power and adventure. It sounds like a fascinating discussion and we are really looking forward to hearing it. So it just remains for me now to hand over to Dr. Michelle Johansson. Thank you, Tony. That's a fantastic introduction. I feel like I can just go home now. That was great. And thanks too for promoting the courses at the Institute. Of course, I've got my own advert slide at the end of the presentation where I'll be uh, hammering that point home too so that people can hopefully book for some of my courses later on in the term. Thank you very much for that. It's great to be speaking um, in front of you all tonight. It's really, it's a really good opportunity for me to share some of the findings from the Institute's uh, archives. And thank you all very much for coming along and special thanks to Tony and Sue for all their support and help with um, getting this talk underway. I'm going to share my screen now so that I can um, show you the presentation I have ready for you. So Adventures in the Wild East, 1890s to 1960s, but mostly we will be covering the earlier part of that period. 
exactly as Tony said, I'm Dr. Michelle Johansson. I um, work full time at Bishopsgate Institute. My Twitter handle is at Historitage. If anyone wants to follow me, I often share things relating to the history of London, lots of ephemera, old postcards, that kind of thing. Or if you want to follow the Institute's own Twitter feed and you're not already, that's at Bishopsgate Inst. And there you'll find out all about not just the kind of things that I do at the Institute, but more widely what takes place at the Institute, including um, concerts have just started again, lunchtime concerts on a Friday that are live streamed on Facebook. And um, also a few courses that are taking place online. Sadly, most of what's happening now in the building has had to uh, come to an end because of coronavirus. But the um, research area is still open to the public. So if people do want to come and research the collections at the Institute, you can still do that. We're um, observing social distancing, obviously, within the archive. And you do need to make an appointment in advance. But I should definitely emphasize that you can still come to the Institute even now. So I will show you how things look for those of you who haven't been to the library before. If anyone is interested in old-fashioned libraries, you'll definitely want to visit the Institute's library. It's absolutely beautiful, very much as it was originally planned in the um, late 19th, early 20th century when it opened. And there on the right you have um, an image of the Institute in its very, very early days in the late 19th century, uh, designed by Charles Harrison Townsend, who also designed the Horniman Museum and Whitechapel Art Gallery. So you can see the very similarities there between um, the twin turrets at the top and those kind of similar architectural uh, symbols in those other two buildings as well. Now, usually how I deliver my courses and sessions at the Institute is that students will get immersed in the archive materials. I'm very fortunate I can get hands on with the collections, get out as many things I like, and the students get to explore them by handling the materials. So these are really immersive sessions. But sadly, we can't do that at the moment. So what I've been doing is transferring um, these items into online uh, presentations. So you will still get the chance to explore the materials, but obviously this is in a virtual way. So we're going to look at these five specific individuals. We're going to look first of all at the philanthropist and the boys club. Then we're going to look at the police officer and the anarchists. And already Tony has mentioned um, the Houndstitch murders or that possibly was Sue. So we're going to touch upon that as well. We're going to talk about an unusual MP. Then we're going to talk about the unlikely anti-fascist. And finally, we're going to talk about the pacifist and community worker. So those are our five chapters this evening. I should warn you that the first chapter is a long chapter. So if you feel that, um, oh gosh, this is going to be five times as long as this first one, start to panic partway through and think you're going to be here till midnight, not to worry, you will not be. Some of the, some of the chapters are shorter, some of them are longer. So I should warn you that in advance. And also, this is um, quite an expansive talk. So do feel free to make yourself very, very comfortable, relax and just enjoy it. And I know um, that Tony was saying about no food or drink. I want you all to be having banquets as I'm doing this talk. I want you all to be relaxed and enjoying yourself. So with Alta Villas, the philanthropist and the boys club. So in 18... 70, there were 20 young men boys club in London, but by 1890 there were more than 350. So there was a positive explosion in the boys club movement in London at this time. And this was partly an initiative that was um, underpinned by the church and it was partly an initiative underpinned by public schools. So all of you I'm sure will be familiar with the settlement movement. Many people were coming from um, public schools into poorer areas of London, including of course the East End, and setting up what were called missions. 
So there was a lot of um, settlement activity happening. Toynbee Hall, of course, emerged out of this mission movement. But the mission that we're really interested in this evening is the Eton Mission, which was established in Hackney in 1884. You can see on the right of the slide there some of the other missions as well that were taking place in the East End of London. And what you can also see there is that quite often when a boys club mission was started, there would be a, um, a similar girls equivalent that would be set up. And the reason I've listed these, even though obviously boys clubs and missions were slightly different things, most of these new missions had a boys club attached to them because the whole point was to try to get young lads off the streets, to get them away from the pubs, to get them away from opportunities to gamble and to just hang around, loaf about on the streets. It was the idea was to provide something that would give them a safe place to go and productive things to do. So this is our concern, Hackney Marshes, East London. I'm going to cover quite a lot of the East End of London. We're going to go to an East End as well, but at the moment we're looking at the fringes of the East End and Hackney Wick. So um, the map was drawn up in the late 19th century. The population was around 6,000 men, women and children. They were described as being of the very poorest class. They were mostly unskilled factory workers. And as you can see from my arrow there, Eaton House is identified. Eaton House was part of the Eaton mission that was established in Hackney Wick in the late 19th century. And Eton Mission was very typical of the mission movement. There was a church and there was a boys club, there was a choir and there was a men's club and there was also a Sunday school. So here you see the church tower. This is St. Mary of Eton. It was between 1890 and 1892. One of the best uh, accounts of Eton Mission was written by this extraordinarily named gentleman, Ernest Melbourne Swinnerton Pilkington. Immediately from his name, we get a sense that he was not from a working class background. He was an old Etonian, one of the young men that came into the Eton mission to help support the work that was going on there. And this is a quotation taken from his own autobiography. He said, I had never heard of the Eton Mission or of Hackney Wick when he was first invited to come and help out with the work. But he said, although the work there had been going on steadily for a year or two, he hadn't heard of it. But having searched diligently through Mogg's Guide to London and the suburbs for the correct geographical position of Hackney Wick and all the metropolitan timetables for a suitable train to Victoria Park Station, I duly set off one evening in search of adventures in the Wild East. And this is a great reminder to us that at this time, for many of these young men who were from public schools, who'd had quite a constrained, restricted life, it was very exciting to be able to go and explore these areas of London that they wouldn't have been familiar with and to have a bit more of a rough and ready lifestyle, at least for an evening or two. So Pilkington's account is fantastic, not just for his description of what happened at the Eton Mission, but also for wider life in the East End of London. Pilkington used to take the young lads swimming in the um, River Lee, and then here he's describing what the scene was like as the men from the dye works looked on at them swimming. So he said on early summer mornings, the men from the dye works used to stand out on the edge of their wall and look on. They were sometimes a rich blue all over, and they were sometimes red, according to the dye with which they were working at the time, and their appearance was always picturesque. So Pilkington provides this really uh, evocative description of the East End of London at the time, but as I say, he also provided a description of what life was like at the Eton Mission. So he's describing different events that he supported at the mission in the late 19th century. He says, one time we rehearsed and performed a play entitled Paris and Back for Five Pounds, a well-known farce which should have lasted an hour. The audience were nevertheless kept in shrieks of laughter for nearly three. There was no attention to the words as far as I could judge as prompter. I have never enjoyed a play so much in my life. 
Then he said another amusement was a tournament on hobby horses with lots of banging about with bladders tied to sticks. We kept this kind of thing up till we were all quite exhausted and I believe I was hoarse for a fortnight after. Now, um, the hobby horse combat, as it was called at the time, was they would use uh, pig's bladders tied to sticks and attack each other's sticks. This was a really popular game in boys clubs in the late 19th, early 20th century. And uh, the winner of the combat was the person whose bladder lasted for the longest. So a very um, curious game, but very popular with boys clubs at the time. And these two quotations from Pilkington are a really good reminder, as I say, of the fact that these uh, gentlemen who were going to the East End of London were used to having quite dull lives. And then he's describing this play and saying, I never enjoyed a play so much in my life. And this is someone who would have had access to the elite plays of the West End, but he's insisting that this play he saw at the Eton Mission was the best play he'd ever seen. So clearly these Old Etonians were having fun in the East End of London, along with the important social work that they were carrying out there. So by the turn of the 20th century, the uh, old Etonians who were working with the Eton Mission had identified that there was something of a problem with the Eton Mission. They were in despair at the fact that the um, young lads would come into the club and there would be a boys club for them. So they were okay up to the age of about 11, 12, 13. But then they were too young to move across to the men's club. There was nothing that was being offered for the boys in between. They were also concerned that there was too much parson, by which they meant that the um, Eton mission was a bit too religious. They weren't happy about this. And they were annoyed at how much money was being spent on building this church tower. They felt that the money would be better spent providing practical support and help for the boys of the club. So a breakaway group decided they were going to set up what they called an old boys club. And what they meant by that was a club for age 13 upwards. So old boys sounds like it's for the over 60s, but in fact it was for these younger old boys. So 1909, this old boys club was set up above a coal shop in Daintree Street in Hackney Wick, and this is the shop itself. This is where the club was at the time, and here are some of the boys involved in the early days. It only admitted boys who'd previously been members of the Eton Mission Boys Club. That was really important. It wanted to make sure they'd already had a kind of training in how to behave appropriately in a boys club setting. And at this point, the Eton Mission and Eton Manor completely split. And so what we see here is the institutional versus individual settlement. The um, founders of the Eton Old Boys Club were um, all operating in an individual way, whereas the Eton Mission was still under the auspices of Eton College. So that was the key distinction between these two groups at this time. So there are four important uh, people behind the founding of the Eton Manor Boys Club. Alfred Wagg, you see on the left there, and Edward Cadogan, who you see on the right. Edward Cadogan believes that too much is given, much is required. And that's a, a clear statement that um, anyone who is wealthy has the um, kind of expectational pressure on them that they will do something in return for that uh, good fortune that they have had just through an accident of birth. But also what Cardogan talked about in his um, memoirs before the deluge, he talked about his curious life in the late 19th, early 20th century, where he was straddling West End and East End. This quotation is just wonderful. He said, I led an energetic life in those days. I thought nothing of going East after work, having supper at the club, by which, which meant boys club, changing and running a couple of miles or so with the Harriers, as we called the running section, catching the train back to London, reaching home after 11 o'clock, changing again, and going on to a ball which lasted until the small hours of the morning. I remember attending a private dance at Buckingham this one night and on the next a dance in our club hall, enjoying them both equally. So again, you get that idea that the Eton um, Manor managers and 
uh, key organisers were enjoying their life in the East End of London as much as they were in the West End of London. The other two key figures were even more important in the founding of the Eton Manor Boys Club. Gerald Wellesley spent from 1907 to 1922 in Hackney Wick. He settled in the area. He lived in the clubhouse, a, a little house to the side of the clubhouse, for that period of time. Then Arthur Villers spent from the 1920s through to the end of his life in 1969, living in first of all Hackney Wick and then Leighton, as I'll explain in a moment. And Arthur Villa's attitude to life was that if you have to live in this wicked world, you should endeavour to make some contribution to its welfare, however trivial. So what he felt is that this was an awful world, it was completely rubbish, so while you're here you might as well do something useful with it. And for him, something useful was managing the Eton Manor Boys Club. So these four gentlemen, uh, they pulled their assets, they were all extremely wealthy, and they took over the Manor Dairy Farm in Hackney Wick. You can see it on the left there, very derelict. You can see a group of these old Etonians having an inspection of the grounds, and then they bought this Manor Dairy Farm and transformed it into da, 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 big trumpet fanfare, this incredible clubhouse, which was completely cutting edge, built to last, really beautiful clubhouse. So this is Patrick Smith, who was a member of the um, Eton Manor Boys Club. He joined in 1946, and he said that the clubhouse was completely out of place in Hackney Wick. He said, I mean, when it was opened, it was a pretty run-down area, and the clubhouse was absolutely grand. And you get a sense of that grandeur here in these uh, two photographs. What you see on the right is the club gym, which also doubled up as the club hall. And then on the left there, you get the attention to detail in the clubhouse. You can see this grand stone fireplace there with a beautiful... Everything was done on a grand scale for the Eton Manor Boys Club. Clubhouse here was divided into boys and old boys section, so you had snooker available, there was a cafe, there was a library, committee room, operatic society, drama groups, music groups, debating society, there was a club magazine called the Chinwag, there was a rifle range in the basement, you can see that there on the right, extremely popular with the members of the boys club the whole way through the first half of the 20th century and then yeah as I say the building was divided into a boys and old boys section so what this gave the members was a sense of progression and a feeling of belonging it was like a family once you joined you would start at the age of 13 you progress through to the old boys section and you would have one entrance you were going for the boys club and a separate entrance for the old boys so there was a real sense of um, the kind of ritual of passing through into adulthood and becoming a member of the old boys section Then in 1923, these four Old Etonians clubbed together to purchase 30 acres of wasteland between Hackney Wick and Leighton and Stratford. You can see a photograph of this here. They then formed the Manor Charitable Trust, which meant that they could use their money um, that they earned through their various um, uh, working, working lives and that they would put that towards supporting the Eton Manor Boys Club in the long term. So they, they weren't in this for the short term, this was a long haul operation and they transformed this piece of waste ground here into the most extraordinary deluxe sports ground which the club members called the wilderness. And so you can see the scale of it here, huge expanse of ground here. There were two rugby pitches, cricket pitch, tennis court, squash court, running track, and at the top you can see the running track there. I've done an arrow towards it. This running track was brought across to the wilderness from the um, 1948 Olympics in over in Northwest London. So it was lifted and transported across. So only the finest things were good enough for the Eton Manor boys. There were also nine football pitches, a swimming or plunge pool, 
Now, paddle was a game between tennis and table tennis that was popular in public schools, but also at Eton Manor, which straight away gives you this idea of the kind of um, atmosphere at Eton Manor, which is, you know, I don't need to remind you, but it was in the East End of London, but it was being run on West End kind of lines. So here we've got a couple of old Etonians visiting Eton Manor after the Second World War. And then we've got Arthur Villas talking about war and Eton Manor. War was a really key part of the Eton Manor story, both world wars, First and Second World War. And what Arthur Villas was saying here is in two world wars, the club meant more to its members than ever it did in peacetime. So many people knew that when the wars were finished, they had nothing to which to go back. In the case of Eton Manorites, it was a different story. Gerald Wellesley and I felt exactly the same as any other members of the club. So again, the Eton Manor managers are positioning themselves with the members of the club. They weren't there as managers. They saw this as a whole unity, a, a kinship, a community that were all on the same level together. They were funding the club, they were managing the club, but it was part of a whole community. And the reason why the two world wars were so important is because if you think of the date the club started, it started in 1909. Within four years, uh, the war had broken out and many of the club members went off to fight. Now, if the club hadn't forged this very strong sense of community, it's quite likely that it could have dissipated in the wake of the First World War. But instead, what happened, just letting my cat out, the uh, belonging that it created for the members helped to create even stronger ties than perhaps would have taken place otherwise. So from the 1920s right through to the 1950s, this obviously is a photograph of some of the club members uh, having a, a lovely sing-song around the piano in the clubhouse and the membership of the boys club throughout this period was at the maximum 500 mark. The old boys section also had around 500 active members and there was always a waiting list of boys hoping to sign up. So what this tells us is that tens of thousands of East End kids had their lives actively affected, influenced and transformed by the membership of the Eton Man Boys Club. And the ways in which it was transformed, it wasn't just about a social club, it wasn't just about access to extraordinary sporting facilities and a fantastically equipped clubhouse. The club also provided for its members low or no interest loans to start businesses. It provided them with cheap flats or houses to rent. It provided them with support with their studies. It gave them introductions to the world of work. It gave special specialist medical help at a time in the early period, certainly where there was no national health service. It provided them with theatre tickets or tickets for sporting events and also many of the boys were provided with driving lessons and this photograph here that you see in front of you is the boys club committee the boys were encouraged to become a member of the club committee so they were effectively managing their own club and they were learning important skills while they were doing that the case of Nikki Gargano is really fantastic as a way of illuminating and illustrating life at Eton Manor. Nikki Gargano had never boxed before he joined Eton Manor in 1948. He was, it turned out, a very, very skilled boxer. And so he won a gold medal at the British and Commonwealth Games in Canada in 1954. He won a gold medal in the European Championships in Germany in 1954. He also won a bronze medal in the 1956 Olympics. You can see him there in a photograph on the right, winning the Great Britain Championship at Wembley in 54. Here, right on the right, and then here, you can see the beautifully equipped Eton Manor gym in 1949, at a time when Nicky Gargano would have been practicing there. But Nicky Gargano really foregrounded the role of Arthur Villas in helping him to become successful as a boxer. And this is how he described it. This is Nicky 
Gargano on the left there and then what he said was as a boxer I was an amateur now as an amateur you can only accept prizes as a professional you can accept money obviously that's your living but as an amateur it's a sport so therefore I had to have a job and Major Villas was very kind and gave me a job at Eaton Manor so Gargano was given a job working in the Eaton Manor grounds which meant that he was also strengthening his muscles while he was chopping down trees and doing various uh, jobs around the grounds of Eaton Manor but also it just meant that he could continue to box because he had this job so Eaton Manor provided these respectable routes out of poverty for ordinary East End kids and also the vital and personal involvement of Villas was stressed by not just Gargano but many of the other club members that I've spoken to. Villas didn't only do work with the Eaton Manor Boys Club, he was doing work right across the East End area and for that reason he was given the freedom of the boroughs of both Hackney and Leighton in the late um, 1960s. Between 1922 and 69, as I said earlier, he made his home in the East End. So he didn't just dip in and out of the club life, he completely embedded himself in the early area. He lived in the Spartan surroundings, in a small house, very modest house. He could have had any kind of luxury home he wanted. He chose to live in these Spartan surroundings on the wilderness itself his whole life. He did have a Rolls Royce, a gold Rolls Royce, which he drove around the East End in. But apart from that, he had very simple tastes. And he supported, as I say, both the Eaton Manor and the Eaton Mission throughout this period. He established the manor allotments in Hackney. He helped to start and finance local church groups and he established and paid for other youth schemes it wasn't just Eaton Manor. The other thing that's really fascinating about Eaton Manor is that a girls club was also started uh, during the Second World War the Brookfield Manor Girls Club a kind of sister group to Eaton Manor and some of the um, old Eaton, Eaton Manor old boys I've spoken to and indeed Brookfield Manor girls I've spoken to have suggested that this was set up as a kind of marriage bureau for Eaton Manor boys to provide them with her suitable girls to marry. And it's certainly true that there were marriages across these two clubs that came to work. But what you'll see here from the list of activities down the side, Brookfield Manor Girls Club was for the most part a sports club. It was enacted on a much, much smaller scale than Eaton Manor. But the girls were able to use the sports ground that the boys used. They shared the wilderness with them and also um, put, got up a number of dances and theatrical events that the boys would also attend. So it was a lot of um, in-mixing between the two groups. And you can see here some of the fun that the Eaton Manor, uh, Brookfield Manor girls had with Eaton Manor members in attendance. One person here didn't seem to be enjoying the show so much you can just see on the left but for most people what was happening on this event here was a talented giggle and these shows that the girls would put on were really popular and well attended across the 1950s and 60s i'm just letting you look at this pictures for a little bit longer because they're absolutely gorgeous here i think i really love the the clothes the women's hair fabulous mini beehive emerging there and the big beehive there And the Brookfield Manor girls formed these life friendships that lasted absolutely for a lifetime. These are photos of reunions of Brookfield Manor girls in the um, 1980s and beyond. Obviously, Trivial Pursuit, they're giving the date away, certainly 1980s stroke 1990s there. And uh, the also fantastic um, Bruce Forsyth poses happening in this picture too. And um, it was the case both for Eaton Manor and for Brookfield Manor, that the friendships that were formed at these clubs lasted them for their whole lives. But um, Eaton Manor as well, another key part of the entertainment was the annual uh, Christmas morning swim, took place actually on Christmas morning in the navigation channel of the, uh, the cut in the River Lee. And all of the boys would gather at the club in the morning, they would go over and swim two widths, 
of the cut there and back and the first person to go both ways would win uh, either a, a turkey you can see at the top there or a goose or a um, box of chocolates and so that was a key part of the kind of annual calendar for Eton Manor and the reason I wanted to mention it is just because I think it's really fascinating that boys event on a Christmas morning rather than be with their families after this they will go back to the clubhouse and have bacon rolls and a cup of bovril and I think that that's really tells and um, speaks volumes about the kind of intimacy the closeness of the friendships that were forged at Eton Manor. In 1966, the Wright Arm Street Clubhouse was sold to the GLC for demolition because of a road widening scheme that was taking place in the area. And then in 1969, the gates of the wilderness were closed forever. So the club did close in the 1960s. I've put forever in brackets because the wilderness did reopen for certain events like an annual memorial service for the, uh, the Eton Manorites who had uh, lost their lives in the First and Second World War. And um, then also, as some of you may know, that the parts of the wilderness were redeveloped and used for the 2012 Olympic Games. But the club itself no longer existed as a complete entity. There were still individual sports clubs that kept going and keep going to this day, like the Eton Manor Rugby Club. But as a collective, it no longer existed. However, the memories of the members lingered on and the members continued to meet informally right the way through the 20th century. And that was partly because of this uh, atmosphere of kinship that had emerged, the brotherliness. So this is Doug Bristow who joined in 1945 and he said, if you joined Eton Manor, if you passed probation, it was almost like going into a convent. You gave your life to it. Derek Edwards, I was over there, God knows, five nights a week, weekends the lot. Then Charlie Phillips, who joined in 1928. I think we lived for Eton Manor. I can't say more than that. Once you're a member of Eton Manor, you're finished with everything else. And then this is um, at the bottom. The club became an entity, not a building or the sports ground, but the club wasn't actually an entity. It was almost like a living body. So there was this idea that the ethos of the club was so strong and powerful that it kind of became almost more than the club itself. So much for Eton Manor, we'll return to that shortly, but I'm now going to move on to my next subject. And this is Frederick Wensley, the police officer and the anarchist. And here we've got the um, press cutting here about the, the Houndstitch murders, which I will be talking about now in this part of the talk. So Frederick Wensley, you see him on the left there in his uh, policeman's uniform. And then on the right, you see Wensley's eyes. One look and you had to tell the truth. His eyes were so piercing he could see through everybody. Um, anyway, Frederick Wensley, born in 1865. He was Somerset born, the son of a shoemaker. So he is from Humberland, very, very different to the kind of um, background that Arthur Villas came from. Uh, from 1888, he was a police constable in London. We don't know how he came to London. We don't know why he came to London. But first of all, he was on the beat in Lambeth, and then he moved to Whitechapel in the East End of London. He lived in Stepney during that period. Then just before the First World War, he moved out of the East End and went to Palmer's Green, North London suburbs. He was also the first celebrity detective. Of the CID from 1924 to 1929. And the reason I'm talking about him is because his archive has been deposited at Bishopsgate Institute. And it's a really extraordinary collection that mixes both the professional, his working life, all of his detective work, his police duties, but also the private life too. 
So you've got a photograph here on the left of um, Wensley with his family. And if you look at the bottom of that photograph, you can see the arrow, which points to the, um, the photographic studio where it was taken, the British Studio Company on 120 Mile End Road. So there you get immediate insight into the fact that this was a family living in the East End of London at the time. And then here we've got Frederick Porter Wensley in his autobiography, 40 Years of Scotland Yard, published in 1931, uh, describing how he felt when he was told he was going to be moving from Lambeth to Whitechapel in 1891. He said, I resented the move to what was then one of the worst quarters of London. Not only did the thickly populated slum area of Whitechapel and the surrounding districts breed many of the worst of our native criminals and desperados, but it harboured a cosmopolitan population, chiefly Jews, many of whom were decent, hard-working folk, though others were the very scum of Europe. We're going to think for a minute about what he meant by scum of Europe. This was it. This was the rise of anarchism taking place not just across Europe, but also the wider world across the quarter and a half of the 19th century. So from the 1880s to the 1900s in particular, you had anarchist factions and individuals increasingly using violent means to um, gain their political ends. So you had the assassination of Tsar Alexander II in Russia in 1881, which of course was the reason why so many Eastern European Jews ended up in the East End of London. You also had the assassination of King Umberto in Italy in 1900 and President William McKinley in the USA in 1901. So you can see on a global scale, anarchists were becoming increasingly threatening and dangerous. But also in London itself, in February 1894, there was an anarchist attempt to blow up the Greenwich Observatory. August 1894, New Cross Post Office was blown up. Then in January 1909, you had the Tottenham outrage when Jewish, so-called Jewish, Latvian immigrants carried out an armed robbery. There was a two-hour chase, 23 casualties and four deaths. And I'm sure you already know about the Tottenham outrage, but anyone that doesn't is definitely worth uh, having a, a small investigation into that when you have a moment to really fascinating and curious story. In fact, those Latvian immigrants weren't anarchists, but many people lumped them in at the time with anarchists because people found it very difficult to distinguish between foreign immigrants and foreign activists who were settling in London at the turn of the 20th century. And then, of course, when Wensley was talking about the very scum of Europe, almost certainly who he actually meant was the anarchists who were responsible for the Houndstead shootings in December 1910 that saw three of Wensley's police Comrades killed. I'm going to have a slight sidestep now to mention Arthur Harding, who was a Bernardo boy and a gangster who was active in the East End of London in the late 19th, early 20th century. He was born in the late 19th century, uh, was involved in gang activity and crime in uh, the first half of the 20th century in London. He was a Bernardo boy from an extremely poor background. And this is his unpublished autobiography, my apprenticeship to crime and what I wanted to draw your attention to here was where he describes at the top this gang of foreign desperados who were the most dangerous gang that had ever come to this land to the police they were ordinary Jewish emigrants fleeing from Russian pogroms and so what he's uh, pointing out there is the the inability of those who were enforcing law and order to be able to distinguish between who were Jewish immigrants and who were Russian anarchists and then also what I think is great is his description of these Russian anarchists who, who were marching along in the roadway with their women folk in the middle of them. They numbered sometimes as many as 12 or 15 people, men and girls who all seemed blonde. In Sclater Street, Brick Lane, there was a Jewish restaurant which they frequently used. This restaurant was near Clark's coffee shop where I and my friends would meet. So we had many opportunities of becoming acquainted with them. 
Sometimes they dined at the Warsaw restaurant in Osborne Street, which was a continuation of Brick Lane. I really like that bit of local colour and detail, the idea of these um, gangsters hanging out in the very centre of the East End of London, gangsters and anarchists. And also what he mentions here is that these um, anarchists were doing a little beggary to get funds for their political aims. These were called appropriations that were carried out, as I say, in order, or as, as Harding says, in order to raise funds for activism. So the Houndsditch robbery or appropriation, exactly as Sue mentioned at the beginning, 16th of December, 1910, it took place. Three police officers shot dead from the city, Sergeant Robert Bentley, Sergeant Charles Tucker and PC Walter Chert. Two were wounded, Sergeant Bryant and PC Woodhams. And then following the shootings, the gang escaped and went into hiding in the East End for more than two weeks. And this illustration here is a very dramatic showing the, um, the, the gunmen shooting at the police here. And what was especially shocking for people about these murders was the fact that the, um, the equipment used by the, uh, the robbers or the, the Houndsditch, um, the, the anarchists involved in this, was uh, something that the police had not seen here before and something that police didn't have access to themselves. They were using Mauser pistols that were extremely, um, you know, had fired really quickly and could cause a lot of damage. So then the next part in the uh, Houndsditch murders story was the public memorial service that took place at St Paul's Cathedral on the 22nd of December 1910. There were about 10,000 mourners and onlookers in and around St Paul's on the day. Almost certainly Arthur Villas would have been there. Arthur Villas of the Eton Manor Boys Club worked at Baring's Bank on Bishopsgate itself. He almost certainly would have been there on the day. The London Stock Exchange ceased to trade to allow traders and staff to watch the procession along Threadneedle Street. And almost a million people, 750,000, lined the eight mile route to the cemeteries, throwing flowers onto the hearses as they passed. People were absolutely shocked by these murders. And of course, Frederick Wensley was too. So this is another press cutting from the Wensley Collection at Bishopsgate Institute, the Daily Graphic, Monday, December the 19th, 1910, end of the affray, a scene of the affray and of the East End sequel. So exchange buildings in Cutler Street were where the, the anarchists had rented accommodation. Their plan, in case you're not familiar with the, um, the Houndsditch murders and the, the kind of background to it, was that they knew that there was a jewellery shop there with a safe that contained huge amounts of money. They were going to, they rented the property behind that jewellery shop, they were going to drill through the wall and then they were going to steal the safe take that money and use it on the continent to carry out revolutionary activity. This was the plan. But unfortunately, they were interrupted partway through the burglary and that was when the shootings took place. And then they went on the run. I mean, one of the extraordinary things about when they went on the run was that they uh, wounded one of their own number, George Gardstein. He'd been shot in the back during the affray and they had to walk through the streets of the East End of London with him limping, carrying him on their arms. And this is quite unimaginable that this could happen. And the only explanation could be that people just assumed it was a group of drunk people carrying their friend who was the worst for wear for drink. So they got away with uh, George Garstein, their wounded comrade. They got as far as Grove Street in my where he was put to bed and the others went on the run. So this was the situation in December 1910. And then a huge manhunt was underway. Peter the painter was right in the foreground of this manhunt. A wanted poster here, uh, which is described in a death out of season, Emmanuel Litvinoff's fictional account of the Houndsditch murders and the siege of Sydney Street. What um, Litvinoff said was uh, Peter the painter's face is more of the type of a German or an Austrian than a Russian, but the authorities describe him as a Russian. 
again we find this blurring of the borders between nations with people unable to distinguish uh, where people were from what their background was what their nationality was what their political views were or even um, what their religion or race was so so peter the painter was um very very likely not even there at the time of the Houndsditch murders but partly because of his kind of very much poster boy anarchist face his face was plastered across the east end in that period between the Houndsditch murders and the siege of sydney street everybody looking for him hunting him down across europe and yet very likely he wasn't present at the event the russian anarchist gang russian is in inverted commas anarchists in inverted commas because all of that is open to um, debate uh, but what this image shows you on the side is the, uh, as I said, the, the kind of equipment that was used by the anarchists, extremely dangerous weaponry that they had access to that the police didn't. So when all of these uh, materials were seized, all of these items were seized during searches that were taking place as the, the police tried to hunt down these anarchists, it just inflamed public fear and anxiety about the anarchists who were settling right at the heart of the East End of London. And this list of names you can see down there on the left, that's just to give you a sense of how confusing it was trying to track these people down. Nearly all of the anarchists had aliases, a number of aliases, so it's very, very difficult for people to actually find who these people were, and where they were staying and so on. And also what you'll see at the bottom is three women who were involved in the incident and its aftermath here. siege of Sydney Street. Finally, January, the police have a tip-off that the gangsters are hiding out in Sydney Street in um, Mile End. So the, the um, house itself is placed under observation on the 2nd of January. The observation continues through the night. All the occupants of the property are evacuated one by one. Then horse-strong vehicles containing armed policemen drive into the area and armed men are stationed in shop doorways facing the house. At about 7.30 a.m. stones are thrown to attract the anarchist's attention, but immediately shots are fired from the house. The siege is now underway. There are about 200 police involved, including our very own Frederick Porter Wensley. These items I'm showing you now, these photographs are all from his scrapbooks that he kept of not just this incident, but every incident he was involved in during his policing career. An extraordinary record of crime in the East End of London and beyond. So there are also 21, possibly 74, the arguments are still raging about that. Scots Guards, they were sent for mid-morning when it was realized or appreciated how much ammunition the anarchists had in this property on um, Sydney Street. There were 35 members of the Royal Horse Artillery and 15 Royal Engineers. There was also one marching band. There was a news agent just around the corner from Sydney Street that had hired a marching band because they were going to be opening that very day. They were very excited about their opening and they wanted to advertise it by using this marching band and a couple of men with sandwich boards parading around the area to draw attention to their new business. And uh, they were told by the police that this could not go ahead because of what was taking place in um, Sydney Street, the siege itself. But they insisted on still having the marching band going ahead because they paid for them and they were going to use them. So alongside this siege, there was a marching band parading around doing their um, advertisement for the new shop that was opening just around the corner. There was also by high noon, one home secretary. You can spot him there, it's Winston Churchill in his top hat, who insisted on turning up as well to see what was going on. I particularly like the expressions on these two gentlemen here as they're looking across at Winston Churchill. There are about a thousand onlookers 
users as well, of course, you can imagine the excitement that was generated by this sensation taking place on the streets of the East End of London. It was live theatre for people. They were all gathered around. And then you had the film crew as well. British Pathé News were there and the footage was screened in cinemas that very night. So this is a kind of early example of rolling news. And uh, if you are interested and you haven't already seen it, this footage is available online on um, YouTube as long as you make sure you don't get that someone's put Benny Hill theme tune to, which undermines the seriousness of it. But if you get the uh, the proper version, it is quite extraordinary to watch it and to realise that people were watching that that very evening in cinemas across London and beyond. So then from 1pm, 100 Sydney Street was alight. No one's still sure how that happened, why it happened, whether the um, anarchists did that themselves by deliberately setting light to it, whether it was sparks from the amount of ammunition being used that started the fire. Nobody is really clear, but by 2 p.m. the last shots had been heard and firemen were able to enter the building. So you can see again the crowds here, the amount of excitement generated. No sense of fear, no keeping away from the building. Everybody's just gathered around there at the bottom. In terms of fatalities, there was one fireman, two pets were killed. The two Latvian anarchists, stroke social democrats, Fritz Spars and Joseph Sokolov, also died in the incident. What's really interesting is that nobody at all in either the Houndsditch shootings or the Siege of Sydney Street. This is Frederick Walter Wensley's own apprehensions notebook that he kept, a record of everybody he ever arrested and uh, details of their, their um, arrest and also the court cases afterwards. So you can see here at the end of December, Osef Fedorov arrested here, an accessory for murder, tried to be killed all, discharged. Then too, you had Jakob Peters also arrested, tried at the court, acquitted. And that was the case for all of these people. But what's important to mention here is that Wensley was involved in these cases, and that's why he had such strong feelings about the very scum of Europe who he believed was settling in the East End of London at the turn of the 20th century. I'll ask you a quick question now, not to answer necessarily, but just to uh, give one moment's thought to. I want you to think about when the first Asian Conservative MP was elected in Britain. And obviously now I'm going to tell you. Manchiji Brown, it's our third character now. He was the unusual MP. And you've got a picture of Manchiji Brown here on the right. He was um, known by his enemies as the Bethnal Green Humpty Dumpty, a slightly insulting name, but if you look at his uh, figure, you can perhaps see how he got that name. But you can't understand the story of Manchiji Banagri without knowing a little bit more about the life of Dadaban Naroji, first of all. Dadaban Naroji, pictured there on the right, was born in um, Mumbai, which was then Bombay. He travelled regularly to the UK on business from the 1850s. He was involved in the East India Trading Company. He was a co-founder of the Indian National Congress in 1885. He was a firm believer in independence for India. He was also elected an MP in 1892 for Finsbury Central. He was a Liberal MP and he remained an MP in Finsbury Central until 1895. What was tricky about Dadabai Nauroji is that he was then, you know, extremely powerful figure operating right at the heart of British government, but he was campaigning for independence for India. Throughout the late um, 19th century, he toured India, delivering talks to audiences on the matter of Indian independence. This is his papers all collected together, held at the Bishopsgate Institute in the archives, the Howell archive there. George Howell, who's a Lib Lab MP for Bethnal Green Northeast in the late 19th century. But what Nauroji said, he believed that the 
chief cause of India's poverty, misery and all material evils is the exhaustion of its previous wealth. The continuously increasing, exhausting and weakening drain from its annual production by the very excessive expenditure on the European portion of all of its services and the burden of a large amount a year to be paid to foreign countries debt, which is chiefly caused by the British rule. So this is someone who's an MP in Britain and this is what he believed. Clearly this was troublesome for those who were in power at the time and so the Conservative Party decided they would have a rival MP to Nauroji. In steps Manchurji Baunagri. Baunagri was born also in Mumbai, then Bombay, in 1851. By the 1870s he was a journalist and scholar, then by 1882 he travelled to Britain to study law. He supported British rule in India. In 1892 Dadabai Nauroji was elected. Baunagri knew Nauroji, they moved in the same circles. Baunagri was quite envious of Nauroji's election and he decided he wanted to stand for Parliament as well. And this was very convenient because at this time the Conservative Party wanted an MP who could stand in Parliament and argue against Nauroji on the matter of Indian independence. So in 1895, he was invited to stand um, for the constituency of Bethnal Green North East, at this time a Labour safe seat. It was held by George Howell, who was an extremely popular MP in the East End of London. So obviously nobody expected for one moment that um, Manchurji Banagri would be successful in standing against George Howell. But in fact he was. In 1895 he was elected as Britain's first Conservative Asian MP. And yet we very rarely hear about him today, nor do we hear about Dadabai Nairoji. Most people when they think about minority ethnic representation in Parliament, they tend to think about that moment in 1987 when Bernie Grant, Diane Abbott and so on were elected for Black MPs elected, Black and Asian MPs in 1987, but in fact we have these two Asian MPs in the 1890s. But the reason we don't remember them is because of Banagri's rather unfortunate election manifesto, which centred around immigration. I mentioned in 1881 that Tsar um, Alexander II had been assassinated in Russia by anarchists, and some of those anarchists were Jewish, and partly in response to this assassination, um, pogroms were enacted in Russia that clamped down on um, Jewish, the uh, possibility that Jewish people could practice particular professions, and also filed into tax started to be enacted on Jewish homes in Russia and in Eastern Europe. And so many Jews fled to that area. If they were wealthy enough, they would go to America. If they were poorer, they would fetch up in the East End of London. So by the late 19th century, early 20th century, there was a lot of anxiety around immigration to, in particular, the East End of London. Tens of thousands of people had arrived in large numbers and were settling in and around Whitechapel, um, in particular, Whitechapel and Stepney in particular. So there was a lot of debate and anxiety around this at a time when there were no rules restricting immigration. So when Banchichi Banagri stood for election in 1895, he decided he would stand on an anti-immigration ticket, or rather Conservative Central Party decided he would stand on an anti-immigration ticket. And this was his election flyer. I'll give you a moment to read that. So a truly extraordinary document, and I'm almost sure this explains why we don't hear about Manchurji Banagri and, of course, also Nairoji, because the two are so closely interlinked. If uh, Nairoji's career was better known, then Banagri's would also be better known, and so it's probably best for all if we just sweep them under the carpet, because this is an extremely unfortunate fact that Manchurji Banagri, the first ever Asian Conservative MP in Britain, gained his seat in Parliament 
not just once, twice he was re-elected in 1900, he gained his seat on an anti-immigration ticket. So this is a really curious, curious story. He was then re-elected in 1900 on an increased majority. Then in 1905, the Aliens Act was passed, which did start to um, pr provide some restrictions on who could and couldn't come into Britain. So some undesirable aliens like paupers, lunatics, vagrants and prostitutes uh, could be refused entry to Britain. And so then in 1906, when Boundary stood again for election, this time he was defeated. He then moved on to devote himself to the law and spiritual and community work, and he fell out of public view from that time. So that is the end of the curious case of Manchurji Boundary. And we're now going to look at case number four, which is Malcolm Dunbar, the unlikely anti-fascist. And this is um, Malcolm Dunbar's membership card for the International Brigades. So I know you will all know already about the siege of, um, sorry, about the, the um, Battle of Cable Street, but I just want to show you a couple of photographs here from the Institute's archive. Um, 4th of October, 1936, almost exactly, almost exactly today, 84 years tomorrow, the um, Battle of Cable Street took place in East London when about 6,000 police uh, came together with about 3,000 black shirts and about 100,000 counter-demonstrators and there were pitch battles on the streets in East London. You can see the barricades thrown up there on the left. You can see these pitch battles there on the right. I'm not going to tell you the story of Cable Street because I'm sure you already know it. But what's relevant here is that the Young Communist League were involved. Part of the reason there were so many counter-demonstrators to the fascists who were marching on the East End of London at this moment in 1936 is because the Young Communist League had planned to have a protest in the centre of London at that time, on that very day. But then when they heard about this march taking place, they relocated to the East End from the West End. And one of the people who'd been involved in the Young Communist League and who'd been planning to protest in the centre of London about what was taking place in Spain at the time decided also to go through to the East End and fight against the black shirts in Cable Street. And that person was Malcolm Dunbar. So the Spanish Civil War, 1936 to 1939, on the one hand, you had the Republicans or anti-fascists, and they were loyal to the left-leaning Second Spanish Republic. They were in alliance with anarchists and communists, and they were outnumbered and ill-equipped. And because of that, people started to join the Republicans from abroad. They didn't have any official aid from abroad. They had some help from Soviet Union, some help from Mexico, but otherwise it was just a question of individuals coming who'd been involved in either um, anarchism or communism or socialism in their own country and came across to help fight the fascists in Spain. And they, of course, were called the International Brigades. Then what you had on the other side were the nationalists or fascists, and this was an alliance of phalangists, monarchists and Catholics, led by General Franco, and they had active official support from Italy and Germany. And many people see the Spanish Civil War as a kind of dress rehearsal for World War II. And this gorgeous image you have in the middle there is the Spanish Civil War ephemera from the Sam Russell archive. Sam Russell was an EastEnder who I also could have included in today's talk, but for various reasons haven't. But who we are focusing on is Malcolm Dunbar. So the international brigades were independent fighters, including around 2,500 British and Irish communists and socialists. Many of them had a link or attachment to the East End. Malcolm Dunbar was also there. His only link to the East End was that he did fight in the Battle of Cable Street. His background was actually completely different. Here we have Malcolm Dunbar with the international brigades in Spain with his extremely cool, long leather coat and stylish array. 
And here we also see Malcolm Dunbar there, same outfit again, in a photograph with Ernest Hemingway, who many people are familiar with as one of the um, uh, key people involved in the Spanish Civil War as well, key celebrities. So this is uh, the back of this photograph here, December 1937, uh, 15th International Brigade officers with part of a group of American visitors, including Ernest Hemingway. So this is from Malcolm Dunbar's own collection, which is at the Institute. Ronald Malcolm Lorraine Dunbar, 1912 to 1963. He was a journalist, photographer, and Spanish Civil War veteran. His collection is really extraordinary. His life is completely extraordinary. He was born in 1912. He was the privately educated son of a wealthy banker and his aristocrat wife. From the 1930s, he was a journalist and photographer for ballet companies, including the Ballet Ram there. And then, as I say, when he was 24 years old in 1936, he marched against Moses BUF in Cable Street. 1937, he left London to fight the fascists in Spain, and he was extremely successful in this. He was a really good um, military, he had a really good military brain. And by 1938, he was the Chief of Staff of the 15th International Brigade, and he rose to become one of the most senior British-ranking infantry officers in Spain. Then on his return to Britain, he was a, a communist anyway, and he started to contribute articles to the Daily Worker. He had a long-term association and friendship with Kim Philby, who was part of the Cambridge Five spy ring. 1963, he died by suicide. He walked into the sea off the south coast of Britain. An open verdict was recorded, but it was very clear he meant to take his own life. So a really curious life with a tenuous connection to East End London. Our final subject is Muriel Lester, the pacifist and community worker. You can see Muriel Lester on the right there. And then on the left, you can see a headline from a newspaper describing her life. This is admired by many statesmen, loved by the poor. So we start to see a little bit of an Arthur Villa's Stroke Eaton Manor story emerging here. Muriel Lester and her sister Doris set up Kingsley Hall in Bow in East London, opened in 1915, and um, it was set up, as you can see on the left there, to enrich the common life of the people of Bow. And you can see also the founders, Muriel Lester there, Doris Lester, her sister. And then on the right, what you can see from this 1939 fly is the kind of activity that was taking place at Kingsley Hall in front by the 1930s. So a whole range of um, things, including worship, of course, there was a church, Christian dimension to um, Kingsley Hall that was missing from Eton Manor, certainly. And there was drama there, international affairs. Again, that's something that was missing from Eton Manor, which had a very local focus, apart from, of course, when the, the Eton Manor boys went off to fight in the war. And then you have homemaking, first aid, dressmaking. So this was at a time when social work was still not a formal practice, and this was an effort to provide support and help for people from poorer backgrounds. So here we see Muriel on the right there and her sister Doris on the left. And just as Arthur Villas, Muriel Lester for her work for the community was rewarded with the freedom of the borough. For her, it was the Metropolitan Borough Poplar that gave her the freedom of the borough. And if we go to the next slide, we can see why. So in 1900, she was from a wealthy background. She was born in Leytonstone in Essex. She settled in Bow. She used to go on the trains into the centre of London and would see the poverty that people lived in in the East End of London as she travelled through and she was shocked by this. So she settled in Bow and in 1915 co-founded Kingsley Hall as a community centre plus. 
the um, centre practiced voluntary poverty by which Muriel Lester and her wealthy sister would deposit all of their money and anyone else that was involved in the centre would deposit all of their money as a collective and then share it all out equally among them. No one was supposed to be wealthier than anybody else. She was involved in uh, everything that was set up to try to improve the lives of the poor during the first half of the 20th century. So for example, the Jarrow Poverty uh, Hunger March that took place in 1935, the march also visited Kingsley Hall where they were fed and given um, soup and a place to rest while they continued the march. From the 1920s, Muriel Lester made weekly speeches in Hyde Park. She spoke about pacifism, she spoke about the, um, the uh, rich and poor and the divide between rich and poor and how wrong it was. But then from the 1930s to the 1950s, she went international with these lecture tours across the world, USA, Japan, China, India. She was involved with the International Fellowship of Reconciliation and for a long time she was their official spokesperson. So she toured the world campaigning for peace. 1926, she visited India and she met Mahatma Gandhi. In 1931, the Second Round Table Conference took place. So we've got this tie back here to Dadabhai Nairoji and Manjaji Banagri. Indian independence again rears its head in the East End of London. So this Round Table Conference took place in London. Gandhi was here for it. Ten weeks stay. He was supposed to be put up in the West End of London, but he refused. He wanted to stay with his friend Muriel Lester in the East End of London. So he spent these 10 weeks in Bow, staying in Kingsley Hall, walking around the area. Apparently everywhere he went, he was mobbed by the kids of the East End because he would walk around in his traditional um, Indian clothes. He didn't bother trying to wear Western clothes. He would walk around like this. And apparently he was very popular with all of the local people in the East End of London, this kind of figure of fascination when he was here on would stay in the East End of London. Then Muriel Lester joined Gandhi on his anti-untouchables anti tour of India as well in 1934. So you can see this woman who was based in the East End of London but touring the entire world with these particular political and pacifist initiatives that she was involved in. The smiling face I mentioned there with Eaton Manor and this big effort to make sure that everybody was always positive at all times. Nobody would reveal anything, any negativity or any fear or doubt about what they were doing. In 1941, Muriel Lester was um, campaigning across America against the Second World War. I mean, obviously this was in the midst of war. This was seen as almost a, akin to terrorism in 1941, she was arrested. And she was sent to prison in Trinidad. She spent 10 weeks there. This is a telegram she sent home to her sister at that time. And she's saying here, imagine Whitsuncamp extended. Books, wonderful birds, excellent food, no responsibilities, health never better. New friends here want nothing. So she's determinedly positive in this telegram she's sending back to her sister. I mean, this time she was a 57-year-old woman and she was in prison in Trinidad. And the um, British government tried to intervene to get her released and they wanted to put her into a hotel instead of the prison because they thought this is just going to look very bad if this woman you know, succumbs to ill health because she's living in the squalid prison conditions. But Muriel Lester refused to be taken out of the prison and put into more luxury surroundings. She thought she should be treated exactly the same as any other prisoner and insisted on staying in prison in Trinidad. Then finally, um, due to the campaigns by the Foreign Office here, she was transferred to Holloway to serve out the rest of her sentence. So Kingsley Hall and Eaton Manor, if we flip back to the very beginning and think about Arthur, Arthur Villas and what he was doing in the East End of London, 
So they are similar in some ways, those two initiatives. This is a photo on the left of the Eaton Manor boys helping to erect the um, new scaffolding to put up some floodlights on the Eaton Manor ground. And then here, what we've got on the right is a group of the kids who were involved in Kingsley Hall helping to clean the windows and get everything decorated and ready for the new club opening in Eagling Road. So you see the sense of community in both places. You see all pitching in to help. Both Arthur Villas and Muriel Lester have friends in high places. For Muriel Lester, it was George Lansbury, Sybil Thorndike, H.G. Wells. She was friends with Jane Addams in, um, in America as well, the, the famous welfare campaigner there. So she was also very well connected. Both places had a multi-purpose community centre attached. Both of them were set up by well-to-do interlopers from outside the East End. The dates and chronology, chronology were almost identical, both with Leicester and Villa's own lifespan, almost identical, but also the clubs themselves set up just before the First World War and then continuing through to the 1960s, very active. But where they part company, those two, two clubs, is that um, Kingsley Hall was pacifist, Eton Manor patriotic. Kingsley Hall was religious, Eton Manor was secular. Kingsley Hall practiced voluntary poverty. No one was expected to have very much, whereas Eton Manor was, set, uh, was, was kind of aspirational and encouraged the members to get good jobs. It helped the members to buy their own properties. And finally, Kingsley Hall had a local remit. It was very much, I'm um, sorry, Eton Manor had the local remit and Kingsley Hall had this international span and spread. So they were very different in many ways as well. So I've been talking about five characters in East End in search of fame, work, self-fulfillment, political power or adventure. We looked at Arthur Villas, born in Oxfordshire, privileged, male, unmarried, philanthropist and politically inactive for the most part. We looked at Frederick Wensley, who was born in Somerset, upwardly mobile, working class, male, married and conservative with a small c. We don't know his political views for sure, but he was a mason. He was very conventional. Manchurji Banagri, born in Bombay. Wealthy, male, married, but his wife was in India, so he lived alone his whole life in London. And he was, as we know, conservative. Then we've got Malcolm Dunbar, born in Devon. He was extremely privileged. He was male, he was likely homosexual, and he was communist. Finally, we have Muriel Lester, born in Essex. She was privileged, female, unmarried, Christian Baptist, and a radical pacifist. So five very different characters, all spending a moment or a lifetime in the East End of London. And so I finally want to think about what their experiences reveal about wider East End stories. I think there's a clear link to immigration and anti-immigration here. We can tell those wider stories through these individual lives. Also activism and links to international political movements. Those subjects bleed right through these different characters. Then a sense of community through shared clubs and interests that emerges certainly through the Eaton Manor and the Kingsley Hall stories. And finally, settlement and charity in a pre-welfare state world of poverty and want. We see that through those stories too. And then if we think about what their lives tell us about history is made, told and retold. All of these stories have been constructed directly out of the archives at Bishopsgate Institute. And they all tell us about people passing through the area. And they tell us that those, their lives are more thoroughly documented than the EastEnders themselves. None of my subjects were EastEnders. They all had a huge impact on East End life, or they all had a, a kind of connection with East End life, but none of them were from the East End themselves. These uh, lives also tell us that the unusual or sensational is better remembered or preserved than the humdrum or everyday. These lives also question the history from below thesis. I would contend that unexceptional lives are still forgotten. The wealthy and powerful have simply been replaced by activists, victims or criminals. 
we still don't get to see mainstream, ordinary, everyday lives in our archives. And so what I would like to do is make an appeal for the value of keeping and archiving day-to-day -day stories of ordinary lives so that we can get to see how people were living apart from those who were involved in powerful positions, apart from those who were setting up important initiatives, or apart from those who were um, perhaps under attack, like say, for example, the fantastic uh, uh, new account of the victims of the Whitechapel murders. So we have those new accounts now, but that's again, that's the victims. What about all those people in the middle? I want to know about their lives and how are we going to access those? How are we going to remember those? And that is the end of my talk. Apart from this is, if you have enjoyed listening to this and you do want to book any courses at Bishopsgate Institute, these are the courses that are coming up in the next few weeks that I'm delivering. But it's not just about the courses that I'm doing. There are many, many other courses also taking place at the Institute that you might find of interest if you're not interested in these particular subjects. So do either sign up for the Institute's mailing list or just go onto the website and have a look and see if there's anything there that attracts you. And that is me finished. Thank you for listening, everybody. That's great. Thank you very much, Michelle. Um, very, very interesting. And thanks a lot for that last slide as well. Um, what we're going to do, everybody, is we're going to take a pause here. Um, it's just about quarter past eight. So let's come back about half past eight and then we can have some questions. So in the meantime, as you're getting your tea, having another uh, beverage, um, if you have any questions, please do pop them into the chat area. We've had some very nice comments in there already. Um, and then when we come back, um, I'll ask those to Michelle. And if you have any other questions, I'm sure Michelle will be happy to answer them for you. So um, if we can all return back here uh, at half past eight, please. Thank you very much. And thank you, Michelle. Bye. Okay, so welcome back, everybody. Uh, and thanks for all your comments that you put in the, the chat area. Um, I'm going to start with you, John. Do you want to just go through your, your comment, your question? A very good one. Yeah, so I know that um, Michelle said in the talk, a brilliant talk, by the way, thoroughly enjoyed it, um, that... Um, non-exceptional people um, weren't very well documented historically. Um, for future generations, with the internet, social media, blogs, do you think that's no longer going to be the case that, you know, when future generations come back to look, uh, particularly now, you know, at the pandemic and things like that, non-exceptional people are going to be much better documented and easy to track their experiences? Well, hopefully, but it just depends how... I'll kind of shut the door. It just depends how um, how things are being saved. I think that's the issue, isn't it? Because there are some very forward-thinking institutions with lots of money who are able to uh, save all of that data. But if um, you know, and at the moment, of course, it's available to us all, but we don't know how long all of that stuff will still be accessible online. So that's depending on us still having the same platforms and access to the same platforms. If that changes then suddenly all of that information is lost. So you've got places like the British Library who are starting to collect um, things, but they're doing it, of course, in a, you can't collect everything, so they're picking yeah. and choosing. So, so again, you've got this gatekeeping going on, even if it's not intentional gatekeeping, you know, there's still decisions being made about what we do collect and don't collect. And so, yeah, if, if the internet stays as it is and we all have free access to it, then fantastic. We will definitely have those voices. But my concern, obviously, is that that, that might not happen. That is a great question. Thank you very much. It's really something worth thinking about. Um, again, this what I'm going to do is if you have a question, do use the reactions, put your thumb up or just unmute your microphone or pop a question into the into the chat box. Um, mm. I guess the comment from me is actually before I talk about that, um, I think um, Philip um, Hutchinson spotted 
um, that uh, he, Steenie Morrison is in one of the pictures in one yeah. of the slides. Yeah. It's, just, yeah. He, it's because he was arrested by Wednesday. I mean, that's a whole other story as well. This is the trouble. Honestly, you're lucky that I managed to keep to just about an hour or so <laughs> because this could have gone on for, for hours and hours and hours because, yes, yeah, Steinie Morrison was arrested by, by Wednesday. So that's where you spotted him in the arrest notebook, I think, wasn't it, where you saw his name under there. And so his, yeah. his case is incredibly well covered in the Wednesday archive. It's just fascinating and, and tragic. You know, because obviously he he um, killed himself in prison. So, so yeah, it's very very interesting. Those photographs that you spoke about, the Wesley photographs, are they all housed in the Bishopsgate Institute? Yes, yeah, and all of it is accessible. You don't need to be a member of the Institute's library, and you don't have to have a letter of introduction or anything. It's really open and free and easy. So, as I say, at the moment, because of COVID, you have to make an appointment. But aside from that, no restrictions on entry. So you can just go in for free and look at these materials for you know your own interest and entertainment. You don't have to be doing a serious research project or anything. And the Wednesday scrapbooks are just gorgeous. I mean, there's the, uh, there's two of them. One of them's the early period, and it's loads of press cuttings from the time, so it's really long, really text heavy. But the second one is uh, from the interwar period, and it just reads like an Agatha Christie novel. It's just fantastic. Wow. It's huge banner headlines about motor bandits in the 1920s. It's just brilliant, really enjoyable read. And then also his um, son-in-law became a policeman too, and he collected all the mug shots that he used to carry around in his pocket, because obviously in a pre-computer age, that's what he would have done. So there's all these mug shots from the interwar period, little mug shots of, of criminals with no background information, you don't know who any of them are, nothing written on the back of them. But you know, you can just picture this policeman walking around with the, the mug shots in his pocket, seeing someone who looks a bit suspicious, getting them out, you know, flicking through quick, and then, um, you know, placing someone under arrest. It's a great resource, honestly, it's just brilliant. Sounds like it should be published, Michelle. Oh, completely. Absolutely. I know. No, I really agree. I mean, that's the thing. There's mm. so many stories that just haven't been told yet. And I think that that definitely would be great to be published. And even the um, Arthur Harding manuscript that hasn't, you know, I mean, we know Raphael Samuel has written about him, but yeah. There is, sorry, have you seen there's, a, there's actually a question from Ian on that. Does the interview have much on Arthur Harding? Uh, yes, they've got the unpublished autobiography, which is like a wallpaper bound typescript, just beautiful, which is actually online. That's one of the few things we've got digitized. So you can oh. access that online. But then aside from that, there's also um, he hand wrote it all in um, uh, kind of A4 paper. So that's all there, too. And then there are Raphael Samuel's papers are at the Institute. So there's all of his background information and uh, recordings that he did with Arthur Harding. So that is there, but but because of course Arthur Harding's really poor, there's not very much from his own life that still remains. So so yeah, it tends to be more, you know, very poor in his early life anyway. It tends to be more about what's been written about him rather than him himself. You were talking about the uh, the Houndsditch murders, uh, Michelle, um, and there's actually a book um, which has been written by somebody that I think we all know, Donald Rumbelow. Are people oh, aware of yeah. Donald Rumbelow's book on that? Yeah, I've actually got a, so you can't that's see it. But. Absolutely fantastic, but yes, that's a standard work on it. Uh, it's just brilliant. I know, no, I, you might have noticed I rushed through that section because I thought they're all going to know this stuff. And so I didn't want to patronise you all by saying too much about it. So, so I most stumbled a bit over the information there because I was just assuming you all know it already. And it's just the, you know, the, the new stuff from the Wednesday Archive, because also in the Wednesday Archive, there are the police drawings of the area, the Siege of Sydney ah. Street. They're just incredible to see. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Are there any other questions or comments, guys? 
John has mentioned uh, Adam Wood, who's a friend uh, friend to the Whitechapel Society, who's a publisher who might be interested maybe in doing something on uh, on those scrapbooks. Yes, I think that would be worth looking into. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Definitely. Just say hello, Carol and Linda. <laughs> Special <laughs> shout out. I haven't seen Carol and Linda for a long time, so I'm just waving oh, to them. <laughs> nice to see you both. <laughs> Okay, well, unless there's any more questions, I'm happy to, to wrap up here. Oh, Ian, sorry, I beg your pardon. Go ahead, Ian. If you want to take yourself off mute. I had two, actually. One was, did you have any photographs of Arthur oh, Harding? I can't hear you, Ian. Ah. Can you hear me oh, now? we can. Sorry, it's my headphone, my 199 headphone. Sorry, go ahead, Ian. Okay, my first question, which I was a great talk, by the way, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Okay. My first question was going to be, did, do you have any photographs of Arthur Harding at the Institute? Yes, yeah, including the one you saw of him as a Bernardo boy. There's, there, there's the one of him as a Bernardo and the one of him as an old man, but do you have anything in between? Very little. No, I mean, I think there, are, I think there might be more than one of him as an older man, but yeah, not, it's, it's not a copious amount. Okay. Um, and the second question was, never mind, Adam, the Whitechapel Society will do a book with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great, wouldn't it? There could be a whole series. That would be fantastic. Lives from the East End. Loved it. Thanks. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Also, I've just noticed Melissa mentioned about Kingsley Hall being set up in memory of the um, Doris and Muriel's brother. And that's absolutely true. His name was Kingsley and he died early, very young. And uh, so, Melissa, you're right, completely. Was set up in memory of his brother their brother. Thanks for that. Well done, Melissa. Okay. Well, um, I think it's time to wrap the session up. Um, but it's been a terrific evening and there's been a number of really positive comments in the chat as well, um, Michelle. It's been very, very interesting learning about these, these people. I think the other thing is that you do find out about the East End, one thing I found interesting was the fact you talk about the dye workers initially early on and how, depending on what they were working on, the colour they were. And that, that's an amazing insight because obviously the whole of the East End, the Homerton, Hackney, um, Stratford, was, it was a huge um, sort of light industrial area, wasn't it? Absolutely. I know. Yeah. Very, very different yeah. today. I mean, all of it and the yes. uh, sugar factory, the whole uh, Truman's Brewery. I mean, it's just completely different, isn't it? All of that yeah. factory yeah. that was going on in the small scale clothing production. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, very yeah. picturesque description. I love that. And his whole book, I mean, if you want something entertaining to read, the Pilkington book is brilliant. Great. Okay, Michelle, it's been great to have you. Thank you so much for coming. We've really enjoyed your talk tonight. Um, and I think you'll be seeing some of us at uh, some of the courses that, um, that you've mentioned. I certainly am going to put myself down for some. Um, so thank you so much. And, um, Tony? And uh, yes. Can I, uh, can I say, can we have an unmuted round of applause for Michelle? I think that's a great idea. Right. Absolutely terrific idea. I think an unmuted round of applause is absolutely deserved. Thank you all very much and thanks for listening. It was a long haul. We should have sponsored it. <laughs> great. Thanks a lot, Michelle. I'm just going to pause and stop the recording now.